0: Simon & Schuster Audio presents Long Way Down by Jason Reynolds, read by the author. An interview with Jason Reynolds follows the program.
1: For all the young brothers and sisters in detention centers around the country, the ones I've seen which is why I haven't told nobody the story I'm about to tell you. And truth is, you probably ain't gonna believe it either. Gonna think I'm lying or I'm losing it, but I'm telling you, this story is true. It happened to me, really. It did, it so did. My name is Will, William, William Holloman. But to my friends and people who know me, know me, just Will, so call me Will because After I tell you what I'm about to tell you, you'll either want to be my friend or not want to be my friend at all. Either way, you'll know me know me. I'm only William to my mother and my brother Sean whenever he was trying to be funny. Now, I'm wishing I would have laughed more at his dumb jokes because the day before yesterday, Sean was shot and killed. I don't know you. Don't know your last name if you got brothers or sisters or mothers or fathers or cousins that be like brothers and sisters or aunties or uncles that be like mothers and fathers. But if the blood inside you is on the inside of someone else, you never want to see it on the outside of them. The sadness is just so hard to explain. Imagine waking up in someone... A stranger got you strapped down, got pliers shoved into your mouth, gripping a tooth somewhere in the back, one of the big important ones, and rips it out. Imagine the knocking in your head, the pressure pushing through your ears, the blood pooling. But the worst part, the absolute worst part is the constant slipping of your tongue into the new empty space where you know a tooth supposed to be, but ain't no more. It's so hard to say Sean's dead, Sean's dead, Sean's dead, so strange to say, so sad, but I guess not surprising, which I guess is even stranger and even sadder. The day before yesterday, me and my friend Tony were outside talking about whether or not we'd get any taller now that we were 15 When Sean was 15, he grew a foot, maybe a foot and a half. That's when he gave me all the clothes he couldn't fit. Tony kept saying he hoped he grew because even though he was the best ball player around here our age, he also was the shortest. And everybody knows you can't go all the way when you're that small unless you can really jump, like fly. And then there were shots. Everybody ran ducked, hid, tucked themselves tight, did what we've all been trained to, pressed our lips to the pavement and prayed the boom, followed by the buzz of a bullet, ain't need us. After the shots, me and Tony waited like we always do for the rumble to stop before picking our heads up and poking our heads out to count the bodies. This time, there was only one. Sean. Sean. I've never been in an earthquake. Don't know if this was even close to how they are, but the ground definitely felt like it opened up and ate me. Things that always happen whenever someone is killed around here. Number one, screaming. Not everybody screams. Usually just moms, girlfriends, daughters. In this case, it was Letitia. Sean's girlfriend on her knees kissing his forehead between shrieks. I think she hoped her voice would somehow keep him alive, would clot the blood. But I think she knew deep down in the deepest part of her downness she was kissing him goodbye. And my mom moaning low, not my baby, not my baby, why? Hanging over my brother's body like a dimmed light post. Number two, sirens, lots and lots of sirens howling, cutting through the sounds of the city, except the screams. The screams are always heard over everything, even the sirens. Number three, questions. Cops flash lights on our faces and we all turn to stone. Did anybody see anything? A young officer asked. He looked honest, like he ain't never done this before. You can always tell a newbie. They always ask questions like they really expect answers. Did anybody see anyone? I ain't seen nothing Marcus Andrews, the neighborhood know-it-all said. Even he knew better than to know anything. In case you ain't know, gunshots make everybody deaf and blind, especially when they make somebody dead. Best to become invisible in times like these. Everybody knows that. Even Tony flew away. I'm not sure if the cops asked me questions. Maybe. Maybe not. Couldn't hear nothing. Ears filled up with heartbeats like my head was being held underwater. Like I was holding my breath. Maybe I was. Maybe I was hoping I could give some back to Sean. Or maybe, somehow, join him. When bad things happen, we can usually look up and see the moon, big and bright, shining over us. It always made me feel better. Like there's something up there beaming down on us in the dark. But the day before yesterday when Sean died, the moon was off. Somebody told me once a month the moon blacks out and becomes new. And the next night be back to normal. I'll tell you one thing. The moon is lucky it's not down here. Where nothing is ever new. I stood there. Mouth clenched tight enough to grind my teeth down to dust. And looked at Sean lying there like a piece of furniture left outside. Like a stained up couch draped in a gold chain. Them fuckers ain't even snatch it. Random thought, blood soaking into a t-shirt, blue jeans, and boots looks a lot like chocolate syrup when the glow from the streetlights hit it, but I know ain't nothing sweet about blood. I know it ain't like chocolate syrup at all. In his hand, a corner store plastic bag, white with red letters, Thank thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. Have a nice day. In that bag, special soap for my mother's eczema. I've seen her scratch until it bleeds, pick at the pus bubbles and flaky scales, curse the invisible thing trying to eat her. Maybe there's something invisible trying to eat all of us as if we are beef. Beef gets passed down like name brand t-shirts around here always too big, never ironed out, gets inherited like a trunk of fool's gold or a treasure map leading to nowhere, came knocking on my brother's life, kicked the damn door down and took everything except his gold chain. Then the yellow tape that says do not cross gets put up and there's nothing left to do but go home. That tape lets people know that this is a murder scene, as if we ain't already know that. The crowd backs its way into buildings and down blocks until nothing is left but the tape. Sean was zipped into a bag and rolled away, his blood added to the pavement galaxy of bubblegum stars. The tape framed it like it was art, and the next day, kids would play mummy with it. Back on the eighth floor, I locked myself in my room and put a pillow over my head to muffle the sound of my mom's mourning. She sat in the kitchen sobbing into her palms, which she peeled away only to lift glass to mouth. With each sip came a brief silence, and with each brief silence, I snuck in a breath. I felt like crying, which felt like another person trapped behind my face. Tiny fists punching the backs of my eyes. Feet kicking my throat at the spot where the swallow starts. Stay put, I whispered to him. Stay strong, I whispered to me. Because crying is against the rules. The rules. Number one, crying. Don't. No matter what, don't. Number two, snitching. matter what don't number three revenge if someone you love gets killed find the person who killed them and kill them the invention of the rules ain't come from my brother his friends my dad my uncle the guys outside the hustlers and shooters and definitely not from me another thing about the rules they weren't meant to be broken. They were meant for the broken to follow. Our bedroom, a square, yellowy paint, two beds, one to the left of the door, one to the right, two dressers, one in front of the bed to the left of the door, one in front of the bed to the right, in the middle, a small TV. Sean's side was the left, perfect, almost. Almost. Mine, the right. Pigsty, mostly. Sean's wall had a poster of Tupac, a poster of Biggie. My wall had an anagram I wrote in messed up scribble with a pencil in case mom made me erase it. Scare equals cares. Anagram is when you take a word and rearrange the letters to make another word. And sometimes the words are still somehow connected. Example, canoe equals ocean. Same letters, different words, somehow still make sense together, like brothers. The middle drawer was the only thing ever out of place on Sean's side of the room. Like a random jagged tooth in a perfect mouth, jammed tight between the top drawer of shirts, folded into neat rectangles, stacked like project floors, and the bottom drawer of socks and underwear, off track, stuck, forced in at an angle. Seemed like the middle drawer was jacked up on purpose, to keep me and Mom out and Sean's gun in. I won't pretend that Sean was the kind of guy who was home by curfew, the kind of guy who called and checked in about where he was, who he was with, what he was doing. He wasn't. Not after 18, which was when our mother took her hands off him, pressed them together and began to pray that he wouldn't go to jail, that he wouldn't get Letitia pregnant, and that he wouldn't die. My mother used to say, I know you're young, gotta get it out, but just remember, when you're walking in the nighttime, make sure the nighttime ain't walking into you. Bashan probably had his headphones on. Tupac or Biggie. So usually, I ended up going to bed at night, curled up on my side of the room, eventually falling asleep staring at the half-empty bottles of cologne on top of Sean's dresser and the jacked-up middle drawer, alone. But I never touch nothing, because it's no fun hiding from headlocks half the night which is why I never touch nothing of his no more. It used to be different. When I was 12 and he was 16, we would talk trash till one of us passed out. He would tell me about girls, and I would tell him about pretend girls who he pretended were real too, just to make me feel good. He would tell me stories about how the best rappers ever were Biggie and Tupac but I always wondered if that was just because they were dead. People always love people more when they're dead. And when I was 13, Sean welcomed me into teenage life with a spritz of his almost-grown cologne. Said my girlfriend, my first girlfriend, would like it, but she hated it. So I broke up with her because, to me, her nose was funny acting. Sean thought that was stupid and funny, but worthy of joking me, calling me William, worthy of a headlock that felt like a hug. Now the cologne will never drop lower in the bottles and I'll never go to sleep again, believing that touching them or anything of his will lead to an arm around my neck. But it feels like an arm around my neck wrenching just thinking about how I'll never go to sleep again believing him or believing he will eventually come home because he won't and now I guess I should love him more like he's my favorite which is hard to do because he was my only brother and already my favorite. Suddenly our room seemed lopsided cut in half half empty half cold half curious about that one drawer in the middle of it all. The middle drawer called to me, its awkward off-centeredness a sign that what was in it could and should be used to set things straight. I yanked and pulled and snatched and tugged at the drawer until it opened just more than an inch, just wide enough for my 15-year-old fingers to slither in and touch cold steel. Nickname, a cannon, a strap, a piece, a biscuit, a burner, a heater, a chopper, a gat, a hammer, a tool, for rule number three. Which brings me to Carlson Riggs. He was known around here for being as loud as police sirens, but as soft as his first name. People said Riggs talked so much trash because he was short. But I think it was because his mom made him take gymnastics when he was a kid. And when you wear tights and know how to do cartwheels, it might be a good idea to also know how to defend yourself. Or at least talk like you can. Riggs and Sean were so-called friends, but the best thing he ever did for Sean was teach him how to do a penny drop. The worst thing he ever did for Sean was shoot him. A penny drop is when you hang upside down on a monkey bar and swing back and forth harder and harder until just the right moment, when you release your legs and go flying through the air, hopefully landing on your feet. It's all about timing. If you let your legs go too early, you'll land on your face. If you let your legs go too late, you'll land flat on your back. So you have to time it perfectly to get it right. Sean taught me how to time it perfectly. If you could do a penny drop or a backflip, no cartwheels, you were the king. Sean could do both. So he was the king around here to me and Tony and all our friends. But he made sure I was the prince, in case you ain't know. Reasons I thought knew Riggs killed Sean. Number one. Turf. Riggs moved to a different part of the hood where the Dark Suns hang and bang and be wild. He wanted to join so he wouldn't be looked at like all bark no more, and instead could have a backbone built for him by the bite of his block boys who wait for anyone to cross the line into their territory, which happens to be nine blocks from our building and in the same neighborhood as the corner store. That sells that special soap my mother sent Sean out to get for her the day before yesterday. Number 1.1. Survival tactics made plain. Get down with somebody or get beat down by somebody. Number 2. Crime shows. I grew up watching crime shows with my mother. Always knew who the killer was way before the cops. It's like a gift. Anagrams. And solving murder cases. Number three. Had to be. I had never held a gun. Never even touched one. Heavier than I expected, like holding a newborn, except I knew the cry would be much, 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 much louder. A noise from the hallway. My mother stumbling to the bathroom, her sobs leading the way. I quickly slapped the switch on the wall, dropping the room into darkness, dropping myself into bed, pushing the pistol under my pillow like a lost tooth. Sleep ran from me for what seemed like forever, hid from me like I used to hide from Sean before finally peeking out from behind the pain. I woke up in the morning and tried to remember if I dreamed about anything. I don't think I did, so I pretended that I dreamed about Sean. It made me feel better about going to sleep the night he was murdered. But I also felt guilty for waking up, for breathing in, for stretching, yawning, and reaching under the pillow. I wrapped my fingers around the grip, placing them over Sean's prints like little brother holding big brother's hand again, walking me to the store, teaching me how to do a penny drop. If you let go too early, you'll land on your face. If you let go too late, you'll land on your back. To land on your feet, you gotta time it just right. In the bathroom, in the mirror, my face sagged. Like sadness was trying to pull the skin off. Zombie. I had slept in my clothes. The stench of death and sweat trapped in the cotton like fish grease. I looked and felt like shit. And so what? I stuck the cannon in the waistband in the back of my jeans. The handle sticking out like a steel tail. I covered it with my too big t-shirt the name brand hand-me-down from Sean. The plan was to wait for Riggs in front of his building. Me and Sean were always over his house before Riggs joined the game, and since then, Sean had been up that way a bunch of times to get Mom's special soap. I figured it would be the safest if I went in the morning. If I timed it right, none of his crew would be out yet. No one would ever suspect me. I'd hit his buzzer, get him to come down and open the door. Then I'd pull my shirt over my mouth and nose and do it. In the kitchen, the sun burst through the window, bathing my mother who slept slumped at the table, her head resting in the nest of her red, swollen arms. She'd probably been scratching all night, maybe trying to scratch the guilt away. I wanted to wake her and tell her that it wasn't her fault, but I didn't. Instead, with the pistol heavy on my back, I stepped lightly over the creaky parts of the floor, trying not to wake her and lie about where I was going and break her heart even more. The yellow light that lined the hallway buzzed like the lightning bugs me and Sean used to catch when we were kids. We scooped them into washed-out mayo jars four or five at a time. Sean would twist the lid tight, and the two of us would sit on a bench and watch them fly around, bumping into each other, trapped, until one by one their lights went out. At the elevator, back already sore, uncomfortable, gun strapped like a brick rubbing my skin raw with each step. It seemed like time stood still as I reached out and pushed the button. White light surrounded by black arrow. Down. Seven. There's a strange thing that happens in the elevator. In any elevator. Every time somebody gets in, they check to see if the button for the floor they're going to is lit. And if it isn't, They push it, then face the door. That's it. They don't speak to the people already in the elevator. And the people already in the elevator don't speak to the newcomer. Those are elevator rules, I guess. No talking, no looking, stand still, stare at the door, and wait. 9.08 a.m. A guy got on. Definitely older than me, but not old. Medium brown skin, slim, low haircut, part on the side. No hair on his face, none at all. Not even a mustache. Gold links dangling around his neck like magic rope. Check to make sure the L button was lit, going down too. L stood for loser when we were kids. So Sean and I would stand in an empty elevator and wait for someone to get on and push L. And when they did, we would giggle because they were the loser and me and Sean were winners on a funny and victorious ride down to the lobby. I thought about this when the man with the gold chains got on and checked to see if the L button was already glowing. I wondered if he knew that in me and Sean's world, I'd already chosen to be a loser. It's uncomfortable when you feel like someone is looking at you, but only when you're not looking. I've seen girls waiting at the bus stop make men pitiful pieces of putty, curling backward, stretching and straining every muscle just to get a glimpse of what Sean and a lot of men around here call the world. But there were no women on this elevator, so there were no worlds to be checking for. he kept checking anyway, not knowing that if he kept checking anyway, he'd get a world of trouble. 9.08 a.m. Do I know you? I asked, irritated, freaked out. The man smiled, adjusted the chains around his neck, looked me straight in the eyes, dead in the face. You don't recognize me? He asked, his voice deep, familiar. I looked harder squinted, trying to place the face. Nah, not really, I said. He smiled wide. A jagged mouth, sharp and shark-like. Then turned around so that I could see the back of his T-shirt. A silkscreened photo. Him, squatting low, middle fingers in the air. And a smile made of triangles. R.I.P. Buck, you'll be missed forever. My stomach jumped into my chest, or my chest fell into my stomach, or both. I knew him. Buck? I stumbled backward. Couldn't be. Couldn't be. Ain't that what it say, he said, facing me. Couldn't be. Couldn't be. But I thought, I stuttered. I thought, I thought you thought I was dead, he said, straight up. Straight up. I rubbed my eyes over and over and over and over again, tripping. Never smoked or nothing like that. Don't know high life. Don't know bad trips. Don't know dead man's supposed to be talking to me, though. Yeah, I did, I said, hoping he would come back with I'm not dead or I faked my death or something like that. Or maybe I'd wake up, Sit straight up in bed, the gun still tucked under my pillow. My mother still asleep at the kitchen table. A dream. Buck looked at me, noticing my panic. Softly said, I am. I did all the wake-up tricks. Pinched the meat in my armpit. Slapped myself in the face. Even tried to blink myself awake. Blink, blink, blink. But, Buck. I know what you're thinking, that I was scared of, mm, no, to death. But no need to be afraid. I had known Buck since I was a kid, the only big brother Sean had ever had. Sean knew Buck better than I did, knew Buck longer than we'd known our dad. I take it back. I was scared. What if he had come to get me, to take me with him? What if he had come to catch my breath? Anagram number one. Alive equals avail. 9.08 a.m. Catching my breath, I asked, So why you here? I wiped the corners of my mouth, thought, please don't say you've come to take me. Please don't say I'm dead. Please. Actually, he said, doing the bus stop lean back again, I came to check on my gun. My response? Then, finally, in an almost whisper, he added, your tail is showing. I put my hand behind my back, felt the imprint of the piece like another piece of me, an extra vertebrae some more backbone. Thought about moving it to the front. But Sean used to always say dogs, even snarling ones, tucked their tails between their legs. A sign of fear. A signal of bluff. I remember when I gave that thing to Sean, Buck said. He was around your age. Told him he could hold it for me. Taught him how to use it too. Taught him the rules. Made him promise to put it somewhere you couldn't get it. And I replied with as much tough in my voice as I could. But I got it. And I'm glad I found it. Because I'm gonna need it, I explained. Sean's dead now. No need to tiptoe around it. Plus, I figured Buck already knew. Figured dead, no dead stuff. Damn. Dumb thing to think. Happened last night. Followed him from the store, caught him slipping. Gave him two to the chest right outside our building, I said. Anger sour in the back of my throat. But I know it was the Dark Sons rigs in them. Had to be. Buck folded his arms. I see, he said, shaking his head, his mouth fading into frown. So what you about to do? My eyes turned to razor blades. I'm about to do what I gotta do. What you would have done, I squared. Follow the rules. 9.08 a.m. The elevator rumbled and vibrated and knocked around like the middle drawer, like something off track. Scared the hell out of me. What's taking this stupid thing so long, I asked, pounding the door as hard as my heart was pounding inside me. This rickety thing has always moved slow, Buck said, grinning. Yeah, but this is ridiculous, I replied, palms wetting. Might as well relax, Buck said. It's a long way down. Maybe he didn't hear me or didn't take me seriously. Old people always do that. Always try to act like what I'm saying ain't true. Always try to act like I'm not for real. But I was for real. So for real. Relax, I snapped. Relax? I ain't got time to relax. I got work to do. A job to do. Business to handle, I said, feeling myself, my macho between my shaky legs, masking my jumpy heart. Buck laughed, and laughter, when it's loud and heavy and aimed at you, I think can feel just as bad as a bullet's bang. You got work to do, a job to do, Buck teased, wiping laugh tears from his eyes. Right, right, you gonna follow the rules, huh? Yeah, that's right, I said, opening my stance to let him know this wasn't a game, that I was for real. Buck pressed his finger to my chest like he was pushing an elevator button, the L button. But you ain't got it in you, Will, he said, cocky. Your brother did, but you—you you don't. He asked me if I had even checked to see if the gun was loaded. I hadn't, and now almost shot myself trying to figure out how to. Give it to me before you hurt yourself. But clicked something. The clip slid from the grip like a metal candy bar. Fourteen slugs, one in a hole. Fifteen total, he said, slamming the clip back in. How many should there be, I asked. Sixteen, but whatever. 9.08 a.m. He held the gun out. I grabbed it, but Buck wouldn't let go. I yanked and yanked, pulled and pulled, but he resisted and resisted, laughed and laughed, bucked, Buck finally let go, and I stumbled into the corner, slamming against the wall like a clown. You don't got it in you, he repeated, over and over again, under his unbreath while sliding a pack of cigarettes from his pocket. Tossed one in his mouth, struck a match that sounded like a finger snap. Then the elevator came to a stop. I had half a second to get a grip, grab the grip, tuck the gun, turn around, ignore Buck, catch my breath, stand up straight, act normal, act natural, act like the only rules that matter are the ones for the elevator. A girl stepped in, stood beside me, around my age, fine as heaven, flower dress, low heels, light makeup. Lip gloss, cheek stuff, perfume, sweet, fresh, cutting through the cigarette smoke. She checked to make sure L was lit, and it was, walking my eyes up her legs, the ruffle and fold of her flower dress, her arms, her neck, her cheek, her hair. Then the bus stop leaned back to get a glimpse of the world, but the metal barrel dug into my back, making me wince, making me obvious. And whack. 9.08 a.m. I didn't know smoking was allowed in elevators, she said. Her small talk smacking with sarcasm. But I was too shook to notice. You could see that? I replied all goofy. My game no good around ghosts. I wondered if she thought it was me lighting up before she got on since she couldn't see Buck in the corner puffing out, making faces like, get on with it. Uh, of course, it's everywhere, she said, pinching back a cough. She fanned smoke from her face, thumb to Buck who shook his head and blew vanishing halos. She could see him. She could see him? She could see him. Then she turned to me and added, I didn't know guns were allowed in elevators either. She could see Buck? But how? I thought he was only my ghost, only my grand imagination. But when she could see him, could smell his funky cigarette, I knew for a fact this was real. At this point, you probably already don't believe me or think I'm nuts. And maybe I am but I swear this is all true. Swear. I joined in fanning the smoke, shaking her comment about the gun, looking at Buck all crazy, but he ain't care. Just leaned back and took another pull on the cig, burning but not burning down, still long, fire, smoke, but no ash. She brushed her hand against mine to get my attention which on any other occasion would have been the perfect open for me to flirt or at least try to do my best impression of Sean, which was his best impression of Buck. But there was a ghost in the elevator, so no go. Plus, it's hard to think about kissing and killing at the same time. She asked, what you need it for anyway? And when I looked confused, pretended to look confused, she ticked tongue to teeth and clarified, the gun. 9.08 a.m. The next exchange was a simple one. I don't mean no harm, but that ain't something you just ask someone you don't even know, I said, still trying to play cool. The girl nodded, replied, you're right, so right. Then she put her hand on my shoulder, her perfume floating from her wrist to just under my nostrils, and said, but I do know you will. I won't front. I was a little excited. I know I just said flirting on an elevator with a ghost on it was a no-go, but we wouldn't be on this elevator forever. And Sean always said, if a girl says she knows you, but you ain't never met her, then she's been watching you clocking you, checking you. Buck probably taught him that. I hoped it was true. From where is what I came with next, loading up my flirts? Where you know me from? The girl smiled with her eyes. From the playground, she said. Monkey bars. Very funny, I said, picking up on her trying to play me. I ain't no monkey. I never said you were, she replied. I'm being serious. Well, then you got the wrong guy because I'm too old to be hanging at playgrounds. Yeah, but I knew you when you weren't. She opened her purse, dug around, pulled out a wallet, unfolded it, turned it toward me to flash a photo like white people on movies when they want to show off their kids. But I wasn't trying to see no kids. But there they were. There we were. Me and my friend Danny as kids. Eight years old. No need jeans and hand-me-down t-shirt from Sean. Flower dress, shorts underneath for Danny who hung from a monkey bar, tongue hanging from her mouth like pink candy. The sun shining in my eyes. The sunshine in hers. 9.08 a.m. You remember this? The girl asked, folding, snapping the wallet shut. Of course, I said, wondering how she knew Danny. It was one of the best and worst days of my life. You remember on this day? She paused, cocking her head to the side, hands on hips, butterflied arms, and continued. I kissed you. My eyes got big. Danny? This was Danny. Danny, standing in front of me, the flower dress the same, her face eight years older than eight years old, but still the same. Yeah, I remember, I remember, I, I remember that, I remember this, and then I got hung up, and then gunshots, she said, gunshots, gunshots like Firecrackers coming from everywhere. Danny said her body burned and all she wanted to do was jump outside of herself, swing to somewhere else like we pretended to do on monkey bars. And now I want to throw up, Buck baited. He (laughs) had the cigarette dangling, bouncing with each word like a fishing pole with fish on bait. I told Danny how I remember Sean screaming for us to get down. How he lay on top of us, covering us, smashing us into the dirt. I told her how I remember staring at her the whole time. Her eyes wide, the brightness dimming, her mouth open, bubblegum and blood. I swear sometimes it feels like God be flashing photos of his children, awkward, amazing, tucked in his wallet for the world to see. But the world don't want to see no kids. And God ain't no pushy parent, so he just folds and snaps us shut. When they said you were gone, I cried all night, I confessed. And the next morning, over hard-boiled eggs and sugar cereal, Sean taught me rule number one. No crying. The way I felt when Danny was killed was a first. Never felt nothing like it. I stood in the shower the next morning after Sean taught me the first rule, no crying. Feeling like I wanted to scratch my skin off, scratch my eyes out, punch through something, a wall, a face, anything, so something else could have a hole. Anagram number two, feel equals flee. It's cool to see you, Danny, I said, feeling funny but meaning every word. She grew up gorgeous. At least she would have. Good to see you too, Will, she grinned. But you still haven't answered my question. What you need a gun for? 9.08 a.m. My face tightened, hardened. They killed Sean last night. Who killed Sean? Shouldn't you already know? Just tell me who killed him, Will. The Dark Suns. You remember Riggs? Used to live around here? Think it was him. Had to be. Had to be. Danny was killed before she ever learned the rules. So I explained them to her so she wouldn't think less of me for following them. Like I was just another block boy on one, looking to off one. So that she knew I had purpose and that this was about family. And had I known the rules when we were kids, I would have done the same thing for her. Then Danny asked, what if you miss? But I won't, I said. But what if you do, she asked. I won't, I said. But how you know, she asked. I just know, I said. But you ever even shot a gun, she asked. Don't matter, I said. Don't matter. Danny was disappointed. Slapped her hands to her face, tried to wipe away worry, but she couldn't. And I couldn't expect her to. I looked back at Buck for a bailout, some help, something, but he said nothing. Just slid the cigarettes from his pocket and extended it to Danny. Buck offered Smoke? I guess this was his way of diffusing the situation. Thank you, Danny said, wiggling one from the box. You smoke, ass. asked. You shoot, she shot back, slipping it between shiny lips, leaning forward for the light. Buck struck a match, and again, the elevator came to a stop. Five. The elevator, a smoke box, gray and thick. Buck and Danny puffed and blew everlasting cigs. Thought when the doors opened, the smoke would rush out. Mm. But instead, it became a steel cloud trapped in a steel cube. Cigarette smoke ain't supposed to be no wool blanket, ain't supposed to be no blizzard, no snowy TV. Smoke, like spirit, can be thick, but ain't supposed to be nothing solid enough to hold me. I fanned and coughed, expecting whoever was waiting to wait for the next one. Who mm-hmm. wants to get on an elevator full of smoke? What if it wasn't really full of smoke? Still, who wants to get on an elevator with a kid bugging, swatting and choking on the invisible thick? They'd probably think what you probably think right now. I took a step back to make room for the silhouette to move through fog, to step in. Danny and Buck stood behind me, close enough to feel, but I felt no breath. 9.08 AM. Two large hands, the largest I'd ever seen, rushed through the cloud. Hard and fast, snatched fistfuls of my shirt, yoking me by the neck holding me there until the elevator door closed. Could barely breathe already and could breathe less and could see nothing behind this blanket of gray. Then in one swift motion, the hands released me and slapped me into a headlock, the kind that Sean used to put me in, the kind that all little brothers hate. I could hear laughing, like being held underwater by playful waves crashing down on my head, Laughing, laughing, laughing me under. How do you tell water ain't nothing funny about drowning? When I was finally let up, I looked for Buck, for Danny, for help. They moved to the corner, chuckling, blurry, puffing away. What the hell? I yelped, one hand on my neck, one hand on my tucked, untucked. What you reaching for, and why you reaching for it, the asshole who tried to mash the apple in my neck into sauce taunted. Nephew. 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 Nephew? Nephew, he chanted. After all this time, you ain't learned to fight back yet? There are so many pictures of Uncle Mark in our house, hanging on the wall. Hanging on the block, posing with my father, his shorter, younger brother. Dressed blade sharp, suits, jewelry, cigarette tucked behind ear, camera ready. Fly like Sean, foreshadowing the flash. Uncle Mark? I let my hand fall to my side, swallowed hard. Am I going insane? Come here, kid, Uncle Mark said. Let me look at you. I stepped closer, taller than me, taller than everyone, six foot four, six foot five, six feet deep, rested his hands on my shoulders, the weight of him bending me at the knees. Looked like your damn daddy, he said, just like him. My mother told me two stories about Uncle Mark. Number one. He videotaped everything with a camera his mother, my grandmother, bought him for his 18th birthday. Dance battles, gang fights, block parties. But he dreamed of making a movie. Script idea. Boy Mickey. No game, no girls, meets girl Jesse, the young girlfriend of boy Mickey's landlord. Girl Jessie teaches boy Mickey everything he needs to know about girls, how to impress them, how to treat them. But boy Mickey uses what he learns to get girl Jessie to fall in love with him. But her boyfriend, boy Mickey's landlord, finds out and kicks him and girl Jessie out of the building. So they're in love, but they're homeless, but they're happy. Right. Casting of the worst, stupidest movie ever. Boy, Mickey, to be played by Uncle Mark's little brother, my father, Mikey. Girl, Jessie, to be played by the younger sister of a girl Uncle Mark used to date, Shari, my mother. Uncle Mark pulled me in for a hug, but how you hug what's haunting you? And you know, it's weird to know a person you don't know. And at the same time, not know a person you know. You know. 9.08 a.m. Why you here? I asked Uncle Mark. Taking my turn, my time, looking him up and down. Sadness split his face like cold breeze on chapped lip after attempting to smile. I guess he expected me to be excited to see him. And I was, sort of. But still. His hand, he brushed down the front of his shirt, smoothing out wrinkles, straightening himself out. Pants stopped just at the top of his dress shoes. Dress shoes tied in perfect bows, leather shiny, uncreased like he ain't been walking. Brushed and brushed down his chest to stomach, down his thighs. Then squatting, dipped the a finger in his mouth and scrubbed the toe of his shoe—a smudge not there. A better question, he said, eyes up at me, is why are you here? Random thought number two. Always, always, always be skeptical of a person who answers a question by asking a question. Usually, 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 it's a setup. Anagram number three. Cool equals Loco. What you mean, I asked, trying to avoid having to talk about the coldness in my heart and the heater in my waist. What do I mean? He stood up. What do I mean? He repeated, putting hands together, fingertips touching, cracking what sounded like all the knuckles in the world. Listen, kid, don't play me and don't play with me. It's best you turn it loose before I tighten you up. Okay, okay, I begged, trying to hold him off, trying to avoid being knotted up again. Look, they killed Sean last night, Uncle Markin, and today you woke up ready to make things right, right? I nodded. And the reason why is because for the first time in your life, you realize, or at least you think, you could kill someone, right? I nodded, right? He said louder. Right. But to explain myself, I said, the rules are the rules uncle mark huffed closed his eyes i wonder if he was thinking about the rules he knew them like i knew them passed to him passed them to his little brother passed to my older brother passed to me the rules have always ruled past present future forever uncle mark squeezed his lips like he was trying to rip them off then opened his eyes. Okay, Will, he said, all serious. Let's set the scene. What you mean, set the scene? I mean, let's play it out, how this whole thing is gonna go down. Play it out like a movie, Uncle Mark explained. We'll go back and forth. I'll start from the top. The scene. Will stands over dead brother Sean, two holes in his chest, blood all over the ground. Will takes his mother inside. She cries. He looks for his brother's gun. Will finds the gun, lies down, and thinks about the rules. No crying, no snitching, and always get revenge. The next day, he decides to find who he knows killed his brother, a guy named Riggs. Will gets in the elevator, goes down to the lobby, walks outside, past his brother's blood on the concrete. He continues for nine blocks Gets to Riggs' house, sees Riggs, pulls the gun out, and... I got stuck. Couldn't say nothing else. Couldn't say it. Hoped Uncle Mark would say, Cut. But he didn't, the scene continued. Go ahead. Finish it. Up until that point, things were running smoothly, but this stupid last part got me caught up. Finish it, Uncle Mark demanded. Danny whimpered. Buck razzed. Okay, okay, I said, trying to calm Uncle Mark down. Will pulls the gun out, and... I stalled. And... And... My mouth dried out. Words phlegm trapped in my throat like an allergic reaction to the thought of it all. The scene completed. And... And shoots, Uncle Mark finished it for me. Said it slowly, dragging out the shh. Then I could finally painfully hack it up. And shoots. For the record, this movie would have been better than that stupid one he was trying to make when he was alive, that's for sure. Maybe not as happy, but definitely better. Story number two about Uncle Mark. Uncle Mark lost the camera his mother got him. The one he recorded dance battles and gang fights and block parties in the beginning of his corny-ass movie on. Couldn't afford another one. Options? Could have asked Grandma again, but that would have been pointless. Could have stolen one, but he wasn't about to be sweating, so he wasn't about to be running. Could have gotten a job, but working was another one of those things Uncle Mark just wasn't about to be doing. So he did what a lot of people do around here. His plan, to sell for one day. One day. Uncle Mark took a corner, pockets full of rocks to become Rolls Future Finance, and in one hour, had enough money to buy a new camera, but decided to stick at it just through the end of the day, that's all. Just through the end of the day. I'm sure you know where this is going. He held that corner for a day, for a week, for a month. Full-out pusher, money-making pretty boy, target for a ruthless young hustler whose name mom can never remember. That guy took the corner from Uncle Mark, snatched it right from under him, and it wasn't peaceful. Everybody ran, ducked, hid, tucked themselves tight, blew their own eardrums, gouged their own eyes, did what they'd all been trained to, pretended like yellow tape was some kind of neighborhood flag that don't nobody wave but always be flapping in the wind. Uncle Mark should have just bought his camera and shot his stupid movie after the first day. Unfortunately, he never shot nothing ever again, but my father did. Anagram number four. Cinema equals Iceman. Random thought number three. Not sure what an Iceman is, but it makes me think of bad dudes. Cold-blooded. 9.08 a.m. So anyway, after I said it, and shoots, it was like the words came out and at the same time went in went down into me and chewed on everything inside as if I had somehow swallowed my own teeth and they were sharper than I'd ever known. Uncle Mark should have just bought his camera and shot his stupid movie after the first day. Unfortunately, he never shot nothing ever again, but my father did. Anagram number four. Cinema equals Iceman. Random thought number three. Not sure what an Iceman is, but it makes me think of bad dudes. Cold-blooded. 9.08 a.m. So anyway, after I said it, and shoots, it was like the words came out and at the same time went in. Went down into me. And chewed on everything inside as if I had somehow swallowed my own teeth. And they were sharper than I'd ever known. Meanwhile, Uncle Mark reached into his shirt pocket. Pulled out two cigarettes. Great. More smoke. I hope the second one wasn't for me. I don't smoke. Shit is gross. Plus people who live in, who real, like me ain't allowed to smoke in elevators. And what happens next in this movie, Uncle Mark asked, tucking one cig behind his ear, booger-rolling the other between his fingers. Nothing. That's it. The end, I shrugged. He positioned the cig in the corner of his mouth, padded his pockets for fire. The end, he murmured, looking at Buck, motioning for a light. It's never the end, Uncle Mark said chuckle, chuckle. He leaned toward Buck. Never. Buck struck a match, and the elevator came to a stop again. Four. This time, there was no smoke blocking the door, even though there were three people, I guess people, in the elevator smoking. I know it don't make sense, but stay with me. And there he was, clear as day, as the door slid open. Recognized him instantly. Been waiting for him since I was three. Mikey Holloman. My father. 9.08 a.m. My pop stepped in the elevator, stood right in front of me, stared as if looking at his own reflection, as if he'd stepped into a time machine. Moments later, spread his arms, welcomed me into a lifetime's worth of squeeze. Is it possible for a hug to peel back skin of time, the toughened and raw bits, the irritated and irritating dry spots, the parts that bleed? Pop pulled away, noticed his brother, gave Uncle Mark a firm handshake, yanked him in for a half hug, just like on all the pictures. No sound in the elevator except hands popping together and the muted thud of pats on backs. I have no memories of my father. Sean always tried to get me to remember things like Pop dressing up as Michael Jackson for Halloween and after trick-or-treating, riding us up and down on this elevator doing his best moonwalk but not enough space to go nowhere, slamming into walls. Sean swore I laughed so hard I farted, stunk up the whole elevator, even peed myself. I was only three, and I don't remember that. I've always wanted to. But I don't. I so don't. A broken heart killed my dad. That's what my mother always said. And as a kid, I always figured his heart was for real broken like an arm or a toy the middle drawer. But that's not what Sean said. Sean always said our dad was killed for killing the man who killed our uncle. Said he was at a payphone probably talking to mom when a guy walked up on him, put pistol to head, asked him if he knew a guy who went by G. Don't know what Pop said, but that was the end of that story. I always used to ask Sean how he knew that. Especially the whole G thing. He said Buck told him. Said that was Buck's corner. It was then that Buck started looking out for Sean, who at the time was only seven. Buck was sixteen. But I don't remember none of this either. How will? My father's voice brand new to me. Deep. Some scratch on the tail of each word how I figured Sean's would have sounded someday. How you been? Weird talking to my dad like he was a stranger, even though we hugged like family. All right, I guess, I said, unsure of what else to say. How do you small talk your father when dad is a language so foreign that whenever you try to say it, it feels like you got a third lip and a second tongue? I wanted to unload, just tell him about Sean and how Mom cried and drank and scratched herself to sleep, how I was feeling, the rules, all that. Wanted to tell him everything in that stuffy elevator but held back because Buck, Danny, and Uncle Mark were watching with warm, weird faces. I already know, Pop said, taking a deep breath. I know, I know, I know. "'sadness and love in his voice. "'I replied, choking down me, choking up. "'I don't know, I don't know, I don't know what to do. "'I wiped my face with the back of my hand, "'knuckles rolling over my eyes to catch water before it came down. "'No crying, not in front of Pop, not in front of Danny, "'not in front of none of these people, not in front of no one, never.' What you think you should do, he asked. Follow the rules, I said, just like I told everybody else. Just like you did. Pop gave Uncle Mark a look when Uncle Mark asked if I had ever heard my father's story. Of course, I said. He was killed at a payphone. Worry washed over Pop's face, opened his mouth to speak, but changed his mind, then changed his mind again. That's not the story we talking about. What you know is how I was killed, Pop explained. But you don't know. You just don't know. 9.08 a.m. When Mark was shot, I was shattered. Shifted, never the same again, like shards of my own heart shiving me on the inside, just like your mama told you. You and Sean were little and I couldn't just come home and be a daddy and a husband when I couldn't be a brother no more. Not after what happened and how it happened. But I didn't cry, didn't snitch, knew exactly who killed Mark and knew I could get him. The rules. Taught to me by Mark, taught to him by our pop. That night I walked two blocks to where Mark used to move, where dirt was done. And waited and waited until finally a dude came from a building, stepped to his corner, Mark's corner, slapped the pack in a customer's clutch. Money was exchanged and I knew that was my guy. The guy that shot my brother dead in the street. I made my move. Hood over my head. Gun from my waist. And by the time he saw me, I was already squeezing. Pop, pop, pop. And by the third, he was down but I gave him one more just because I was angry. So angry, like something had gotten into me. That something that my pop said had gotten into him must be what my mom meant by the nighttime. Pop said he took off running so fast his sneakers barely touched concrete. Said he took the long way, turned pistol into poof, turned bang bang into hush hush. When I got home, I took a hot shower, hot enough to burn the skin off my body, he said. Couldn't kiss your mother, couldn't kiss you boys goodnight, just lay naked in the scummy bathtub, the cold porcelain keeping me from sleep, from nightmares. But you did what you had to do, I said, after listening to my father admit what I had already known, the rules are the rules. Uncle Mark and my father looked at me with hollow eyes, dancing somewhere between guilt and grief, which I couldn't make sense of until my father admitted that he had killed the wrong guy. You ain't killed G, I asked, confused. No, I did, Pop confirmed, his voice crumbling. But G didn't kill Mark. G was just some young kid trying to be tough, Trying to make a few friends, a few bucks, a flunky for the guy who killed Mark, he explained. Then, then why, then why you kill him, I asked. I didn't know he wasn't the right guy, Pop said, a tremble in his throat. I was sure that was Mark's killer. Had to be. I leaned against the wall next to Danny, thinking... Staring at my father who wasn't my father at all. At least, not like I had imagined him. A man who moved with precision, patience, purpose. Not no willy-nilly buck bucking off at randoms at random. Spent my whole damn life missing a misser. And that disappointed me. And he stood on the other side of the elevator, staring back at me. Wasn't sure what he was thinking. Maybe that I was exactly how he had imagined. Maybe that disappointed him. Random thought number four. There's this thing I used to see kids at the playground do with their dads. They'd stand on their father's feet, the dads holding the kids by the arms, walking stiff-legged like zombies. The kids had to trust the fathers to guide them because the fathers could see what was coming. But the kids, holding tight to their dads, moved blindly, backwards. 9.08 9.08 a.m. Then Pop made the first move. A step forward. I made the next. Then he took another. We met in the middle. Again, dove into each other. This time the hug, a mix of I miss you and who are you and I'm confused and I'm cracking and I don't know what the hell to do or where the hell to go. My father's hand gripped my back as I did my best to bury myself in his armpit to get lost in the new and strangely familiar feeling of fatherhood. And that's when it happened. He pulled the gun from my waistband and put it to my head. I freaked out. What you doing? I shrilled in shock. What the hell you doing? Eye to eye, a tear streaming down his face, Just one, so it ain't really count. Chest aching like a weight crushing me, biscuit tight against my temple, he cocked it, sounded like a door closing. I called out for help, but couldn't see no one. Not Uncle Mark, or Danny, or Buck, or hear them, or even smell the dink of tobacco turning to tar. Like it was suddenly just the two of us, me and my dad, both of us apparently losing our minds. Pop stood over me, the gun pressed against the side of my face. Was the first time I had ever had one to my head. First time I had been that close to death. To the end. And at the hand of Pop. Pop? Pop. You would think I would be thinking about whether or not he could actually do it since he wasn't real. But the hugs were real. And the gun was real. Were no ghost bullets in that clip. Those were real bullets. Fifteen total. One for every year of my life. My stomach was aching. The quaking world in the bottom of it. And it wasn't long before I could feel myself splitting apart. A warm sensation ran through the lower half of my body, seeping down my leg into my sneakers. Cigarette smoke cut once again, this time by the smell of my own piss. 9.08 a.m. Then Pop uncopped the gun, wrapped his arms around me again, squeezed tight like I was some rag doll. stuffed the gun back into my waistband. I screamed, pushed him away, yelled until my throat stripped, until my words became sizzle, weak, wet, worried about looking like a punk-ass kid. And my father leaned against the wall, staring, chin-up, cocky, quiet, while I exploded. And like old times, Uncle Mark came to his side like a brother, pulled the extra sig, the one tucked behind his ear, handed it to my father, chest heaving, eyes on me, he threw the sig in his mouth. Buck took his cue, I backed into a corner, Wish this stupid elevator would get to L for this whole thing to hurry up and be done. Buck struck a match, and the elevator came to a stop. Three. A stranger. Chubby, light-skinned, almost white. The type that turns red, that burns Dirty brown hair, curled up on his head, got in the elevator like a normal guy. Didn't acknowledge nobody. No dead body. No live body. No smoke. Normal. So I figured he was real. Which made me real embarrassed about the pee, but made me real happy I wasn't all the way gone. 9.08 a.m. The thick, pale dude stood staring at his blurry reflection in the middle door when Buck started trying to get his attention. Yo, Buck said. Psst. The guy didn't budge. Yo, dude. Buck called, reaching for his shoulder. The man turned around. I know you, Buck flashed his big, choppy grin. Your name Frigg, right? Only the people who know me know me. The guy said reluctantly, reaching for Buck's hand. Remember me, Buck said, like a distant relative at a reunion. Buck he said, showing the back of his t-shirt again, oh shit, Buck, headcock Buck, arms wide, what's good, man? Nothing is good at all. This is Danny, Mark, Mikey, and you remember Sean? This is little brother Will. Before Frick could answer, I asked Buck how he knew him, what his connection was to me, what he was doing in this spooky-ass elevator. 9.08 a.m. How do I know him? Buck scoffed, shaking his head. This is the man who murdered me. Wait 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 hold up hold up hold the hell on on my brother on sean's name you serious wait what wait 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 what you heard me right see frick here buck paused why they call you that anyway he asked sidetracked it's really frank twin sister francis freaking frat came from my uncle stupid shit old men call you stick in the hood Frick explained. Who are you telling? Matter of fact, because of you, Buck paused again, turned back to me. Because of him, Will, the only reason people around here know my government name is from reading it on my damn tombstone. Buck's real name was James. I've only heard it one time. Buck better than James. Buck short for Young Buck, nickname given by Stepfather as a joke because Buck couldn't grow no facial hair smooth baby face, nothing rough about it. Buck was two-sided, two dads, Step and Real. Step raised him, a preacher, a real preacher, not scared of no one, praying for anyone, helping everyone. Real run through him, a bank robber, would steal air from the world if he could get his hands on it. People always said he was taught to do good, but doing bad was in his blood. And there's that nighttime mom always be talking about. It'll snatch your teaching from you, put a gun in your hand, a grumble in your gut, and some sharp in your teeth. But he didn't start that way. At first, Buck was a small-time hustler, dime bags on the corner. Same old story until my pop got popped at the payphone that night. Then he became a big brother to Sean and a robber to a bunch of suburban neighborhoods every morning. He knew better than to jack people around here and come back with money the most, sneakers the best, and jewelry, which he'd love to show off. Back to Frick. I was shocked when I heard that this dude killed Buck. Yeah, Buck said, hand on Frick's shoulder all buddy-buddy. This the guy? He glanced at me. Sean never told you that story? He never really talked about it, I said. Sean just said you were shot and that he knew who did it, I explained, remembering that time. Sean's face, a candle, melted wax, flame flickering out. I remember the cops banging on our door to question him. To tell him they heard he was close to James. That was the one time I heard Buck's real name. And to ask him if he knew who might have done it, killed him, shot him twice in the stomach in the street. Sean ain't say nothing to the cops, to no one, just locked himself in his room for hours, and the next day I caught him sitting on his bed pushing bullets into gun clip. 9.08 a.m. Well, let me tell you, Buck said. We were hanging out at the court sharing a bottle of something cheap and strong just before it went down, Buck said. Sean was telling me how he had gotten into a little scuffle, nothing major, with one of the dudes from the Dark Suns, Buck said. Said he had to get your mother some kind of soap she uses that he could only get from the store down by where they hang out. A dumb thing to say would have been to tell Buck how important that soap was, that it stopped Mom from scraping loose a river of wounds, but instead I just said, Riggs. I'm not sure what his name is, Buck said. Said Sean said he was going to the store when the dude, Riggs, ran up on him talking all that shit. Said it was nothing serious, just popping off at the mouth about how he was a dark son and how Sean ain't belong around there. Said Sean was in his feelings, all huff-huff, explaining to Buck how he had grown up with the kid, Riggs, and how the kid was brand new. Buck said he told Sean to let it roll off, but he couldn't. Because that's just how he was, all emotional, all the time, Buck said. While he's going on about this dude, I'm trying to show him this chain I just got from some kid out in the burbs, didn't even snatch it. I just growled a little bit and asked for it, and the sucker just took it right off and handed it to me. Ain't even snatch it, Buck said, thinking back on that day like he still couldn't believe it. But what does that have to do with my brother and this guy? I said, pointing to Frick. Hold on, I'm getting to that. So because Sean was tripping so hard about this dude, I gave him the gold chain, Buck said proud. A gift, his first one. Then, Sean left the basketball court. And that's when I came, Frick chimed in, a big smile on his face like he had just won some kind of award. How to become a dark son. One, turf. Nine blocks from where I live. Two, The Shining. A cigarette burn under the right eye. Three, Dark Deed. Robbing someone. Beating someone. Or the worst, killing someone. Note, apparently you also gotta be corny. I was assigned my Dark Deed for initiation, Frick explained. And it was to kill Buck? No, he said. Funny thing is, I was just supposed to rob him. I didn't think it was a funny thing at all. Everybody knew Buck was always flossy, always flashy, but nobody would touch him because of his pops, because of them, real and step. Gangsters always respect older, original gangsters, OGs, and preachers who act like gangsters. Frick said his plan was to jack the jack boy. Said he knew Buck would be at the court, so he ran up on him, pulled the hammer, And got laughed at. Buck said he couldn't get got by a dude who he could tell was as soft as a suburban joker he just jacked. Everybody in the elevator laughed. Except me. 9.08 a.m. Whatever, man, Frick said. I was just trying to earn my stripes. Can't knock me for that. He turned around, caught eyes with Pop and Uncle Mark. They nodded in agreement. No judgment over here, Uncle Mark said, throwing his hands up. Anyway, this crazy fool, Buck, swings at me. Just tries to take me even though I had a boomstick. Crick looked at Buck, shook his head, then cut his eyes to me. I got scared, so I pulled the trigger. Buck bent his pinky and ring finger back, turned his hand into a gun. Bang, bang. Again, what does this have to do with Sean, I asked. Sean stuck to the rules, Frick replied. You mean, I swallowed. You mean he, he, I struggled to get it out. Now Buck put his finger gun against Frick's chest and repeated. Bang, bang. Actually, he only pulled the trigger once, so it was more like bang, Frick corrected. Fifteen bullets. Took me out before I even got my shining, Frick said rubbed just under his right eye like it still rubbed him the wrong way. Freak yanked his collar down. You see this? He asked, exposing a hole in his chest, dime-sized, disgusting, bloody but not bleeding. Your brother's fingerprints are in there somewhere. Buck, hide, replied before I had a chance. And I bet it's his middle finger. When the joke was over, I asked how Sean could have known Frick was the guy who killed Buck. Buck said there was only one other person at that court that night, always there, all the time. A young kid running back and forth trying to dunk, not shoot. Said he thinks I might have known him, Tony, and he wasn't trying to dunk. He was trying to fly. Tony talking ain't the same as snitching. Snitching is bumping gums to badges, but Tony ain't run to no cops or to no cameras. Nothing like that. Tony talking was laying claim, loyalty, and allegiance to the asphalt around here. An attempt to grow taller, get bigger, one way or another. 9.09 a.m. Now let me ask you how you know this kid Riggs got your brother. Buck fired back. Because he clearly got revenge for Sean taking out this guy, I pointed to Frick. Frick, you know a kid named Riggs? Danny asked out of nowhere, her voice floating over my shoulder. Little dude, big mouth, dark son. I figured the description might help. Frick looked at me confused. Who? Anagram number six. I wish I knew an anagram for poser. Frick looked at me like I was crazy, shrugged his shoulders and turned around and faced the door, couldn't see his reflection, couldn't see any of their reflections, just mine, blurred. Frick had his own cigarettes and his own matches. Finally, 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 the elevator came to a stop. When the elevator door opened, no one was there. So I reached over and pushed the L button again and again and again and again because that's what you do when you want the door to close faster. Another one of those elevator rules. Come on, I huffed under my breath, impatient, pissy, pissed off, scared, scarred, and straight up uncomfortable being crammed in this stupid steel box this vertical coffin another second uncle mark chuckled you would never survive in prison nephew finally the elevator door began closing i exhaled happy we were almost there one floor to go and just before it was shut before the door clicked in place four fingers slipped in just barely catching it the elevator door began opening 9.09 AM, him, Sean, stepped into the smoky box wearing exactly what he wore the night before, blue jeans, t-shirt, gold chain, but not his alive outfit, his dead one, the one that came with bloodstains. Everybody was so happy to see him. Sean, Buck yelped, reaching out for him. They slapped hands. Buck fiddled with the gold chained around Sean's neck, moved the clasp to the back. Sean looked at Danny. Look at you, he said, taking her hand, spinning her around. Uncle Mark gave him a light tap in the ribs. Big man, he said proudly. Sean turned, gave him a hug, caught a glimpse of our father. Pop, he said, natural, his face beaming. My father wrapped his arms around Sean, cocooning him, then pulled away, shook hands like men, like partners. All the unalive, undead lined up along the wall, puffing their cigs, smiling as Sean finally, finally faced me. When we were kids, I would follow Sean around the apartment, making the strangest noise with my mouth hard to explain the sound, burpy, but not a burp, like burp mixed with yawn mixed with hum, something like that, for 20 minutes straight, from bedroom to kitchen to living room, back to bedroom, to punish me, he would wait for me to finish, to run out of steam, to let it go, to get tired of being immature, and then, to my surprise, he wouldn't say a word to me for the rest of the day. I looked at Sean. He looked at me. Sean, I said. But he said nothing. I repeated, Sean? Nothing. I stepped toward him, hugged him. He didn't hug back. Just stood there, awkward. A middle drawer of a man. I asked him why he wouldn't say nothing. Why he was ignoring me. But still nothing. Not a word, not even a smile. I told him about the drawer, the gun, that I did like he told me, like Buck told him, like our grandfather told our uncle, like our uncle told our dad. I followed the rules, at least the first two. I hadn't cried. I hadn't snitched. Explained that I was on my way to take care of his killer, followed through with rule number three. Told him I knew it was Riggs. Told him I thought it was Riggs. Then told him I knew it was Riggs again. Confessed that I was scared, that I needed to know I was doing the right thing. The rules are the rules, right, Sean? I was breaking down. The tears were coming and I did what I could to hold them back. Took my eyes off Sean, hoping to fight the crying feeling by not looking. But everywhere else was everyone else's cigarettes glowing like a bunch of L buttons. 9.09 a.m. I looked back at Sean. Tears now pouring from his eyes as he softly snotted and hiccuped like a little kid. Tears pouring from his eyes. Tears pouring from his eyes. Tears Pouring from his eyes, I thought you said no crying, Sean. I said, voice cracking, one of my tears bursting free, but only one, so it didn't count. No crying, no crying, no crying, no crying. And even though his face was wet with tears, he wasn't supposed to cry when he was alive. I couldn't see him as anything less than my brother, my favorite, my only. And there was a sound, like whatever makes elevators work, cables and cogs or whatever, grinding, rubbing metal on metal, like a machine moaning, but coming from the mouth, from the belly of Sean. He never said nothing to me, just made that painful, piercing sound as suddenly the elevator came to a stop. Random thought number five. The sound you hear in your head, the one people call ears ringing, sounds less like a bell and more like a flat line. There was a moment before the door opened, when we all just stood there, sickening smoke thickening, crowded in this cell, this coffin, this elevator, quiet. I looked around, only seeing the orange glow of five cigarettes, puncturing the sheet of smoke like headlights in heavy fog. Only five cigarettes. Sean hadn't lit one, became invisible in the cloud, and I felt like the cigarette meant for him was burning in my stomach, filling me with stinging fire. 9.09 a.m. I went out. The door opened slowly, the cloud of smoke rushing out of the elevator, rushing out of me like an angry wave. I caught my breath as Buck, Danny, Uncle Mark, Pop, Frick, and Sean chased behind it. The L button no longer lit. I stood alone in the empty box and face tight from dried tears, jeans soggy, a loaded gun still tucked in my waistband. Sean turned back toward me, eyes dull from death but shining from tears, finally spoke to me. Just two words, like a joke he'd been saving. You coming? I'd like to give special thanks to my agent, Elena Giovanazzo, who saw this work first and suggested I write it in reverse. And to my editor, Caitlin DeLouis, who took it and helped me shape it into what it is now. The unwavering belief you both have shown me is nothing short of remarkable. Thank you. To my family, but more importantly for this book, my friends who have been with me in precarious situations where our humanity curdles and our ethics are put to the test. I couldn't have written this without our childhoods. To the young men and women serving time in detention facilities, your stories, your testimonies matter. Your lives are often sacrificed by the failures of people twice your age. But you will make it. You will make it. Also, to the poets. Without poetry, especially when I was younger, being a writer would have seemed like a futile attempt. The poets taught me the functionality and power of language. And lastly, to my dear friend, Randell Duncan, we miss you. Rest easy, brother.
0: Long Way Down was written and read by Jason Reynolds. It was recorded by John R. Davidson at Interface Media Group in Washington, D.C. With editing and post-production by Fen Eichner. Elliot Rombach was the associate producer. Long Way Down was produced and directed by Louisa Solomon. This has been a presentation of Simon & Schuster Audio. Available in print from Athenaeum. Also by Jason Reynolds from Simon & Schuster Audio. Patina, read by Heather Alicia Sims. And Ghost, read by Guy Lockhart. An interview with Jason Reynolds.
1: Hi, this is Jason Reynolds, author and narrator of the audiobook Long Way Down. Long Way Down is a story that came to me a long, long time ago. It's one of these strange sort of tales. I like to tell people that it's this mix between Boys in the Hood and The Christmas Carol. And the idea is a simple one. There's a young man named Will whose brother Sean is murdered. And the next day, he has decided that he is going to go and follow the rules. There are three simple rules. One, no crime; Two, no snitching. And three, you always seek revenge on the person who has hurt or murdered someone in your family or your friends. And so that's the plan. And when he gets on the elevator to go down to the ground floor to avenge his brother's death, he is met by visitors on every single floor. And he knows all the people who have come into this elevator. The only thing that's strange is that all these people are already dead. And so this entire story of this young man's life and what's about to happen takes place in the course of one single minute from the eighth floor down to the ground floor. Why write it in a series of poems is always the question that comes up. It's like, why do this in verse? And the truth is, is that, to me, poetry, specifically for books like this, they create a certain level of urgency. This kid is in an elevator, and so to write a story in prose just didn't seem to fit. He's in a small space, and so because he's in a small space, it made sense to use language in small spaces, right? To create small, almost like creating tiny elevators on each page that you have to step into and step out of almost, right? I also just like the brevity of it all. He's in an elevator, To some extent, we're in elevators for a few seconds or for a minute a day. These small moments that we have in elevators, I wanted to sort of emulate that and mimic that on the page. And then lastly, it's about the way that the brain works, the way that our lives work, right? We don't think in full sentences most of the time. We don't act. It's not like Jason is walking down the street. It's like Jason walking street, right? Like That's the way the brain is working. It's like synapses it's not this sort of flowery language that we are so lucky to be able to write in novels but there are certain times where it's not necessary to do so because this kid's life isn't a full sentence that's not what's happening his life is fragments and line breaks and one-word sentences and onomatopoeia and alliteration like that's what his life is in this moment and i wanted to mimic all of that by using poetry to do so This particular novel, I decided to narrate myself because poetry is such an exact form. I couldn't risk the interpretation of someone else in this particular space because it is so personal and because poetry, it leaves a little less room for that kind of interpretation, I believe. And so I know what these words sound like. I know the emotion and where the accents are and where the emotion lies and how to use my voice to make sure that the words come off the page in the way that they're intended to. It's the same reason that I'm glad it's hard for people to read poems on e-books because the minute that you change the size of the font, you change the words on the page. And if you change the words on the page, then that poem is not the same. The same goes for the audiobook. I have to make sure that these poems are what they are intended to be. And so I could not leave that up to anybody else. Two things inspired the story. One, I spent a lot of time in juvenile detention centers. And when you spend time in juvies and you talk to the young people who are locked away, and by the way, there are thousands of kids locked in maximum security juvenile detention centers who are serving 10-year sentences at 14 years old. Many people don't know that that's even a thing in America. (laughs) And when you talk to them, you find out that a lot of them are there because of a beef, gang beefs that have gone on and have gone back and forth for years, right, gang beefs that now exist within a vacuum and sort of spin on their own axes, then most of the kids have no idea where these beefs began. They're just carrying out the orders based on the rules. And so I met some young people over in California a long time ago, and a lot of them were in jail because of this sort of rival gang situation, this rivalry. But what I found out is that the rivalry began in the 1960s over a pair of shoes in jail. And these kids are still shooting each other, going back and forth, retaliating and retaliating and retaliating with no idea what the root of the issue is. And it's just heartbreaking to think about it that way. The other thing that spawned the story, though, is because I lost a friend. I mean, I lost a lot of friends, but one particular buddy of mine, Randell, I lost, I think I was 19, 19. And in that moment, I realized that all of the bad things, all of the things that we say we would never do, the morals and the ethics that we all swear to stand on, when those morals are challenged, you get to see how human you really are. And I knew at that point in my life, in that moment, that I could really do some damage to a human being, that I could potentially take a life myself in retaliation because of how painful it was to lose a friend in the way that I lost him. And so I wanted to make sure that I honored the story of pain and the story of trauma and to say that I understand what it's like to feel like that moment is going to last forever, that time suspends itself. And I think there are too many people, unfortunately, who gets to look through the fishbowl and gets to pass judgment as voyeurs of people living in these situations and these circumstances without understanding the ecosystem that exists within certain neighborhoods. I don't know if I ever intend for readers to learn anything from my books. I don't know if I think about writing in that way. If there is something to learn, it's not a lesson. I don't think I'm here to teach lessons. I think if anything, I'm here to hopefully help us expand and perpetuate empathy Be careful the next time you call somebody a thug. Be careful the next time that you say that, oh, they're just animals or whatever people say about young people growing up in certain situations, especially marginalized kids or people of color or kids who are locked away or kids who are growing up in urban environments and all the other things that we use to qualify certain types, quote unquote, types of children. Be careful. Think twice next time and understand that there are things about them that you don't know. Humble yourself enough to accept the fact that you don't know everything about everyone. And you don't know the situations and the circumstances that some of these young people are going through. And you will never get the fact that there are kids. A kid told me this in juvenile detention center one day. He said, every decision I've ever made, I thought was the right decision. Every decision. He said, everybody is telling me that I have to be a different person. But Mr. Jason, every single decision I've ever made in my life, I've honestly believed was the right decision for me at the time. So before we wag our fingers at young people we have to at least extend a bit of empathy and humble ourselves and extend some compassion to say well let's figure out what the situation is what's the ecology of the community What's the ecology and the ecosystem of the culture? What are the rules and the codes? What's the tradition and the legacy? What's the trauma? Right, These are all the questions that we need to be asking before we pass judgment. That's all I want anyone to think of when they read this book. Whether you learn a lesson or not, is neither here nor there. Just try to extend a bit more empathy and the world would be a much better place.